Hello, everyone, and welcome to Mastering Dungeons. I am your host, Sean Merwin, and I am here with the one and the only, the Emmy Award-winning Teos Abadia. How's it going, Teos? I, I want to thank you for your Emmy that you gifted me. <laughs> oh, I, I just assumed that you, you won an <laughs> Emmy or something. I, have I even been a... No, I don't think I've even been in the running for an Emmy, uh, but I did want to submit things to the Emmys. Oh, no, I said Emmy. Right. Well, oh, Emmy. Uh, okay, close enough. Close enough. Yeah. Okay. No, my sliding, you know, it's classic how people talk about the time I almost won an Emmy. Yes. Yeah. I, I, you know, is there I, one for opera? I think I was up for that one too. Maybe costume design, something like that? I, yeah, it was close. Okay. Um, yeah, but, you know, it was because of Hollywood. Right. Yeah. You, you have to have goals. <laughs> What are we talking about? How are you, Sean? How are you doing, I, I'm, I'm doing okay. The The onslaught of D&D news continues, and it has addled my mind, obviously. Um, and and the, the big announcement uh, for people who have been fans of D&D for a while is that Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman have formally announced a new Dragonlance novel trilogy. But how uh, new? Well... It's so new, it's classic. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. And, and in fact, I think they really highlighted that fact that it was a new three book series of classic Dragonlance novels. And classic, classic and Dragonlance have been highlighted, put in italics, uh, emphasized, which makes you wonder if there's a difference between that and something else. Well, new fans don't remember when New Dragonlance came out and people were pouring it in the streets. Right. Yes, because they hated the they wanted the yeah. old Dragonlance. Flavor. Yeah. Yeah. That's a new Coke joke. But um, yeah. well, <laughs> so yeah, a new three book series will return fans to the most beloved characters from the original novels, along with introducing a new strong protagonist. Okay. Huh. Yeah. Okay. Uh sure i yeah. guess yeah it's i mean it's it's probably true have you read the, <laughs> the books recently i have not well i did reread uh autumn twilight recently the first 1984 novel yep and that was enough for me to remember <laughs> what you know what it was about yeah and yeah of the 190 dragonlance novels that came out i probably read 12 of them Oh, that's pretty good. Um, yeah, I'd, yeah. I'd, I probably read nine or actually, no, I probably actually probably pretty close because I read some of the dwarf ones when I was super dwarf in my super dwarf inspiration mode. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, the first six, I mean, as as a, I think I read them in college and when, yeah, freshman years when I started them, I I love them. Um, they were great, mm -hmm. but uh, but I I do think they probably need some sprucing up. And and what's not clear here is how much this is a sprucing up versus. A retelling. I mean, you're adding a whole new protagonist. It's interesting. Yeah, yeah. It just it'll be interesting to see where it goes. It'll be interesting to see the reception. Um, for me, that they they were always fine D and D novels, and my bar for D and D novels was much lower than my bar for you know other types of reading that I was doing at the time. Yeah. Uh, so, and and that's okay. I, I didn't want you know high high literature in my fantasy reading and, and i just wanted some escapism and and that's i loved D D, and that fit the D D mold great greatly uh so it will be interesting to see both what these novels come out to be as well as what it means for Dragonlance, the setting as a whole within the D D realm yeah the announcement that came today from monday from margaret weiss is uh Watch for additional news from Weiss and Hickman about classic Dragonlance and other projects on the horizon in the coming months. And those are words that kind of purposely say everything and nothing at the same time, I think. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, at least that's the way they read to me. Like, this could mean I'm going to talk to you about the other things I do in my life, or it could mean we've got a bigger agreement with Wizards to do more Dragonlance stuff. It's, mm -hmm. it's unclear. Right. right. Um, we really don't know if there's more to this than than three novels and, and they write it as multi-year agreement but you know it's three novels um 
That could be the multi-year agreement. Right? That could be all of it. So right. it'll, it'll be so fascinating to see where this actually goes. And I think Dragonlance is a setting that um, has had novels people really love, but you don't hear that many people talking about the great run through the Dragonlance adventures or their amazing mm -hmm. Dragonlance campaign because it was a world that did not facilitate, I think, that. Right, right. It, it lets you play the novels, uh, those kind those of, adventures, yeah. sort of, right? And, yeah. and so it, people loved it for the novels and for... You know, I guess there were comics and, and other, yeah, you know, peripheral things, but the adventures themselves weren't at the top of everyone's, you know, best adventure list when, when they come out uh, every year. What are the top 50 uh, adventures? Maybe one of them will be on the list. Yeah. yeah so, it's going to be really interesting to see yeah. where this all goes. Yep. Fantastic. Yep. So next up, one of my favorite conventions, Winter Fantasy, is happening. It's happening in the ether, not in Fort Wayne, Indiana, but it is still happening. And I think within uh, a week of this recording, it will have started. So tickets uh, and games are now on sale. Uh, and as Teos notes, games in Spanish and Portuguese are being offered. Yeah, really cool. Um, there aren't a ton of tables, but they are there. And for people who are in uh, South America, Central America, um, these games, I believe, are discounted. So they are cheaper than the other games, which is awesome. An attempt by Baldwin Games to work with those economies that are different economies where a dollar here uh, is a lot more than a dollar there. So, uh, so that's a great, great move. Um, I'm going to sign up for these. I've actually already signed up for some with my uh, English-speaking friends, and I'm going to sign up for some in Spanish as well. Excellent. And so if, especially if you are a fan of the Adventures League, uh, a ton of games there for you, and you can go to baldmangames.com to uh, sign up, get tickets, and register. Yeah, and, and um, it, you know, it is coming up, so basically when you hear this, you want to sign up immediately right. uh, and play. Uh, but uh, because it'll start, I think, the day that this comes out. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, one thing that, that's worth noting is these online games are selling fast. Mm -hmm. People yeah. are playing the D&D &D online. Yes, they are. You know, since they've started that monthly uh, game day, yeah, they've the been selling. D &D weekends. Yep, exactly. They've been selling quickly. So uh, if you, you know, are, are a regular make sure you get yourself in there or if you haven't been uh taking advantage of these online opportunities and wondering what it's all about what it's like now's now's your chance get in there play a couple see what it's like you know don't i wouldn't sign up for the whole weekend um if you're not sure that you're gonna like it but you sign up for a game or two just to get a feel for it absolutely it's great great con and and uh it, it does make me a little sad from the COVID perspective because this was the last time that I went to a convention. True. Yeah, and me too. That, oh, wow. We've lost some experiences, but we have gained some others. Yep. And hopefully in 2022, we will be in a position where we can again congregate in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Can't wait. Balmy, warm Fort Wayne, Indiana in, <laughs> in February. And, it puts uh, the winter in winter fantasy. It certainly does, but it's always a good time. Speaking of good times, WizKids and Critical Role are partnering to bring you new Exandria Minis. You're the mini master, so you tell me about this. I love me some minis, and all I can think of is why didn't this happen back way when, when the book came out, but all right. Yeah. Um, but it's here now, and it is the first six box sets of premium painted figures coming in spring 2021. Uh, they share what I think are, are, if not all of them, very close to it. There's a Monsters of Wildmount set one and two, and then Factions of Wildmount that focus on different areas. So the Dwendalian Empire, Kryn Dynasty and Zorhas, Clovis Concord and Menagerie Coast. Uh, you, if you go to the Critical Role site, they have a, many more pictures than on the WizKids site, which has a few pictures. Uh, so you can get a look at all the different monsters that are clearly Exandria, uh, Wildmount monsters unique to the setting, So you, which I always love because you can get minis that are kind of wacky and new versus another ogre and goblin. 
Um, and then also heroes that are dressed in sort of the ways that, that represent, you know, that art style of critical role and the fan art and, and all that comes out of the, the live stream, um, which also is to say that you get heroes that maybe look a little different, which can often be really fun to have as part of your collection. You know, when you're playing a character, you don't look like just another rogue, but be a little more, you know, a little more flair to your, to your look of the mini. Um, there will also be premium figures. So, you know, there are the boxes that are collectible, blind, you know, you open them up and see what you get. Uh, but then there will be open, you know what you're getting, premium figures, uh, which WizKids has been making such great versions of now. And then the first one is uh, Monsters of Wildmount Udak. And this is, you know, one of those big, beefy monsters. Pretty cool. So I'm looking forward to that. And hopefully this gets to the critical role fans and they go nuts and buy these all too because i love seeing the minis market do well yep and well if if the uh critical role fans are players we will find out because they will buy these minis um by the box load as it yeah. were and uh also a little podcast news uh i joined the tome show along with josh perry otherwise known as JVC Perry on the DM Guild, prolific writer, to talk with Jeff and Tracy about what to do with your campaign after you finish a published adventure. Um, you can find this on uh, on the podcast site itself or on Twitch. We have a link in the show notes. And it was an interesting discussion, uh, which got into a lot of talk about high-level play and what high-level play means and if you're a DM who struggles with either high-level play or trying to figure out what to do when a campaign ends, um, this would be a good podcast for you to watch. Yeah, I enjoyed it. I watched it, and and it was great. You, you, you the two of you, and really the four of you, uh, had fantastic advice on on the subject. And it, it is a neat, uh, it's a neat question. And I've had this come up where, like, I finished my Tomb of Annihilation campaign, and my friends were like. So will we continue? And I'm like, no. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> I do not want to make all that extra content, though I love playing with you guys. Right. Uh, but but it is, yeah, it's an excellent question of how to handle that. So. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's an interesting concept, both in terms of you as the game master, but on the business side of things, um, when you think about it, what is the best way to handle a customer when when you end what you're providing them? Yeah, uh, yeah. So uh, well, and and there are some. I, I think that's a thing that uh, the adepts did well back when mm -hmm. the adepts were sort of publishing more regularly. You saw the guild adepts created a whole series of adventures around Mesro mm -hmm. tied to Tomb of Annihilation, so you could continue that play with Mesro explorations. And we haven't really seen that, right? We didn't get a, a you know series right. of high level adventures for avernus or dragon heist or anything like that yeah yeah it's i mean that's what the dm guild is there for basically yeah. is to fill in those blanks that wizards can't fill for you so right. uh but as you as you point out on the show those products don't tend to sell super well because right. they're high level and people don't yep. play to those high levels so. exactly exactly yeah. chicken or the egg chicken or the mm. egg uh so there is a a youtube video talking about what are the profit margins at a game store uh, I did not see this, Teo, so I'm interested in yeah. hearing what you have to say. So uh, Anubis Games and Hobby uh, walks through in this YouTube video, kind of very formally shot, but but in a fun way and in a useful way, um, what the, the what profit margins are like for your favorite local gaming store. And what they point out is they try to aim for 40% margins. That's like their goal if they can do it which is far lower than many other types of retail stores. And he kind of walks around his store and shows uh, different products and what the margins are. And I thought it was very interesting, like Magic the, Guarding, Magic the Gathering card sleeves, those transparent things you chuck your cards into to protect them. That's a 40 to 50% margin. So he's like, this is one of the best things we have, right? right. Or dice can be 50%. Love selling dice. But you go to a, like a Magic the Gathering booster box and it drops to 25 to 30% margin. And he's like, it's well below our target average, but there's such a high volume that it can be, you know, it's certainly meaningful. It's the best thing a source sells. Um, board games like Settlers of Catan are 40 to 50%. But interestingly, a very popular new title can be really bad. Like he says, Exploding Kittens is 15%. Wow. 
He's like, it's almost not worth carrying, but right. people come here sp specifically looking for this. So you've got to give them the exploding kittens, right. even if your margin is terrible. Uh, and then he says RPG books like a 5e uh, player's handbook uh, are around 40%. Um, and in the comments to this video, someone asks about the impact of Amazon. And one of the things that he says that's interesting is that D&D books are sold to Amazon sometimes $1 to $3 below wholesale prices. Mm. So how do you compete with that? Yeah, you don't. Um, yeah, and he may have others, uh, other videos in this series. Again, this is Anubis Games and Hobby. Um, very interesting. I, I really enjoyed watching that video. Excellent. Uh, for the Kickstarter portion of our news, we have Our Shores, an RPG C collective project. C S E A standing for Southeast Asian. Yeah. Um, this is kind of an interesting thing, and, and I thought it was kind of cool to talk about because I like how this is a group of collaborators bringing what you could consider what really are three separate projects bundled together into one Kickstarter. It's almost funded, and you have until February 18th to back it. Uh, and there are three very creative, different Kickstarters being created or be different RPG projects being created by uh, separate teams that are part of the same community. Um, you have Navathem's End, which is a powered by the apocalypse and forged in the dark game where it's really kind of cool that the pictures of this are great of this tower at the top of this kind of pile of bones and cities and the apocalypse is coming. And you're trying to stop it. Mm -hmm. um, then you have Capitalities, which is a sort of, you know, capital ites kind of. Uh, uh -huh. is a slice of life coming of age tabletop role-playing game about young adults living in the big city as they try to find out who they are and how to kind of mature and face reality um it's a gm-less system so sort of like fiasco okay nice um and then maharlika is a techno mystic science fantasy mecha rpg inspired by philippine mytho filipino mythology centered around mechanized weapons and their pilots, the eponymous Maharalika. Um, nice. So, yeah, three really neat things. And we've seen in the past um, the Southeast Asian community create some really neat projects. So this yeah. is a, another cool opportunity to to back them in something that isn't D&D, but again, really cool RPGs. Yeah. For the Adventures League, that community has been you know, very hardworking, very conscientious, very creative um, in, in the projects that, that they're doing. So it's always great to see more, even if it's non D&D, you know, from that area. Yeah, absolutely. So we are going to continue with our review of Tasha's Cauldron of Everything, delving now into the fighter class and what the optional class features are in Tasha's for the fighter. Uh, without hesitation, let us chop this down. Uh, when you choose a fighting style at level one, these styles are added to your list of options. So the PHP, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, like, just in case you don't remember what this was, because I had to kind of think, what what are these? So the player's handbook has things like archery, plus two to attacks with ranged weapons, or great mm -hmm. weapon fighting. You get to re-roll a one or a two with a two-handed weapon. So it's sort of like your, it really is your style, you know, sort of how you approach combat-wise. It's, a, it's a, a basic thing that sort of propels all your other choices forward. Mm -hmm. And so added to that list are the following. First, blind fighting. You have blind sight with a range of 10 feet. While you're within that range, you can effectively see anything that isn't behind total cover, even if you are blinded or in darkness. Moreover, you can see an invisible creature within that range unless that creature successfully hides from you. My first thought is this is great, but it is only useful in certain situations. Everything right. else on that list, you're always getting that plus two to attacks with ranged weapons. You're always getting to reroll. You know, for duelist, you're always getting the bonus to damage when you fight with one hand. For the protection ones, you know, you always get that protection. So this is something that is potentially useful, potentially super useful in a limited <laughs> amount of situations. Yeah, I can't help but think of, you know, one of my friends who's very much the optimizer came up with the idea, like, let's all play a party where all of us have levels of warlock, have devil's sight, and then we can cast darkness and we can all see in it and fight. And this mm -hmm. way you wouldn't have to actually be 
uh, a warlock, you know, with devil sight, you could just be a fighter and you'd have blind fighting and still be able to attack within that darkness. Yeah. Um, sometimes I feel like Tasha's has deliberately tried to create more builds that fit in that party. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, yeah, it, yeah it, it, is, it is an interesting choice as a core feature. It, it, it is. And that's why the options like this are so problematic because they are not useful all the time for people that just wants to, to have something and forget about it. But the optimizers will find the way to break this. Right. Yeah. We'll, we'll play the drow who can drop darkness. We'll play the, the warlock, as you say, with devil sight and we'll play this and then we'll just walk around in the dark all the time time and you as the dm then have to deal with this all the time yes yeah <laughs> which can which make the fun game not fun exactly yeah so yeah i also wondered whether this could have been a sort of a, a take on accessibility like now you can be blind but see and here's how you sort of explain it mm -hmm. but i would just explain that versus costing you a feature for it so yeah it's a little limited yeah, it it is uh it's 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 fine, but in certain situations it can be problematic. Yeah. Uh that's all. Uh interception is the next class feature. Um when a creature you can see hits a target other than you within five feet of you with an attack, you can use your reaction to reduce the damage that the target takes by one D ten plus your proficiency bonus to a minimum of zero damage. You must be either wielding a shield or a simple or martial weapon to use this reaction. Yeah, it, this is interesting. When I when I first read it, I'm like, wait, don't we already have this? And so I went and looked at the protection style, mm -hmm. right? Which is when a creature you can see attacks a target other than you that is within five feet of you, very similar, mm -hmm. you can use your reaction to impose disadvantage on the attack roll. So it's not right. minimizing the damage disadvantage. You must be wielding a shield. So now you don't have to take a shield. You could be wielding simpler martial weapon. It's a little more flexible. It, it, it's interesting. And you can also do it after the hit, so you know you're right. reducing that you're you're having an impact, or reducing damage. Yeah. So yeah. so essentially, at lower levels, it's probably better to have the interception because you are uh, eliminating probably all damage a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. Whereas at higher levels, that one d ten plus your proficiency bonus, you know, you're averaging what removing eight or nine points at at fifteenth level. That's probably not a heck of a lot where it might be better to impose disadvantage and point. have it not hit at all. So uh, it's not terrible. Uh, just something to think about in terms of what's already there. Yep. Next uh, class feature is superior technique. So if you are familiar with the Battlemaster archetype, you have maneuvers. This will let you learn one of those maneuvers from that uh subclass if if uh and then it's got the whole thing with if uh you if there's a dc involved use eight plus your proficiency plus your strength or dex and then you get a superiority die which that battle master subclass uses to power the this maneuver yeah and it's worth noting that you there is also a feat in this book that we'll get to when we get to feats uh mm -hmm. that you could add even more maneuvers so one thing that's interesting is especially with the new maneuvers that are in this book, you could now add in a bunch of maneuvers to really customize a character a fair bit mm -hmm. by multi-classing fighter and taking a feat. So it, it's, it could be interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It, flexibility without breakability is, is a good, uh, is a good thing. So that lets you do that. Uh, this next one is interesting. Uh, thrown weapon fighting. You can draw a weapon that has the thrown property as part of the attack that you make with that weapon. In addition, when you hit a target with a ranged weapon using a thrown weapon, uh, you gain a plus two bonus to the damage roll. Uh, one of the players that I'm playing in this new campaign with uh, is now a dart throwing fighter. Oh, sweet. Yeah, it's old school and, and making it uh, making it work so far at low levels by uh, despite his horrible die rolling, uh, <laughs> you know, being able to to pull out and throw these weapons without having to get around this limit that there was that there is on one drawing of a weapon per per turn. Yeah, yeah, and I think some players don't really realize that that limit exists, but it, it is it it will it will 
severely limit you if you're a fighter trying to do that. So this does get around that one per turn limit. Um, and then you get the damage addition. So sweet. Very good. Yeah. Yep. And the last one is an unarmed fighting. And before I started this little segment here, I wanted to say and clarify that, you know, what we're giving are our informed opinions and they are opinions, but, you know, based on running at least thousands, if not more than thousands of players that we know and that we don't know through many, many, many adventures. Um, and this unarmed fighting is something that my my dislike for things like grappling um, tend to color my judgment on on anything like this. So with unarmed fighting, your unarmed strikes can deal bludgeoning damage equal to 1d6 plus your strength modifier on a hit. Um, if you aren't wielding any weapons or a shield when you make the attack, the d6 becomes a d8. And at the start of your each of your turns, if you are grappling a creature, it takes 1d4 bludgeoning damage at the start of your turn. Uh, I, I'm cool with that. all of that. Um, I just don't like sort of trying to break encounters or fights by grappling or doing things. And, and this, this is more a remnant of older editions where you could yeah. do more when you grappled, right? Especially you could third. keep people from casting spells. You can do all sorts of terrible things to them. Uh, yeah. So this isn't that bad. And it does give someone who wants to play that sort of re professional wrestler, uh, which seems to happen at least once a convention uh, when I was running, yeah. you know, seven or eight tables at a, at a convention, you'd always have the one who one player who wanted to, you know, jump off tables and and, and grapple and put people in holds and, and so on. So this is there uh, for them. Uh, what did you want to say about it? No, I mean, I think you're right in that that the in fifth edition grapple is not as bad at all compared to how it has been. Mm -hmm. um, but um, you know, and grappled is its own sort of condition now, right? Mm -hmm. right. Uh, no speed, um, can't benefit from bonus to speed. Um, and I think that's it, right? You're not actually right. restrained, I believe. No, you're not restrained. And that's yeah. the that's the thing, right? When you're <laughs> playing with... Reasonable. When you're, exactly, that's what keeps it reasonable. But that's also what makes players not want to do it. <laughs> because it is right. reasonable. Yes, um, because it is reasonable. Because you know, the, the, you always get the okay. I grapple them. Okay, you've got them. And next round, they're like, "Well, what can I do?" <laughs> I'm like, you can move them. Uh, move, yeah, but you can't really. Well, you can when you move, you can drag or carry the grappled creature with you, but your speed is halved unless the creature is two or more sizes smaller than you. Right. So it's but you know but I want to pin them and let yeah. everyone beat on them and make nope. them unconscious. No, you you can't yeah. you can't do any of that, uh, and and that's what people want. But that's the want that tends to break things. So it's this balance that they're trying to walk, and I think they do a pretty good job here of making yeah. it at least do damage if you're grappling someone. That's you know that's something. Yeah, I just don't know that it's appreciable damage, but but maybe, I mean, the, I think they walk a tightrope really well here. All of mm -hmm. these are reasonable. None of them go, none of them make me go, wait, well, that's crazy. Um, yeah. And it's interesting because there is a feat that we'll see later called Fighting Initiate, which lets you choose either one of these fighting styles or one from the player's handbook. Mm -hmm. um, and so you could do that to be a fighter with two styles mm -hmm. or to be something else that has a fighter style. Um, and so it's even more important that nothing here be broken, right? If, if there was an, if the game later adds something that lets right. you do that pin, yeah, that's where you'll see people take unarmed fighting, fighting style, plus this pin thing, plus, and right. that's where we've got to be careful And 5e as it adds to its, uh, stuff must be really careful so far in Tasha's here in yep. the fighter section. They did this well, I think. I, I totally agree. Uh, at level four, then you, uh, you get martial versatility. Uh, whenever you reach a class in this level that grants the ability score improvement feature, you can do one of the following things. Replace a fighting style you know with another fighting style that's available. If you know maneuvers from the Battlemaster subclass, you can replace one a maneuver with a different maneuver. So we're seeing more of this 
flexibility, allowing sort of mini rebuilds uh, as you go. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah. Yep. Uh, I, I agree. Now there are new maneuvers. Speaking of maneuvers. So if you remember, maneuvers are generally things that are uh, powered by these expertise dice. Is that what they're called? Superiority uh, die. Yeah. That's what it's called. They're powered by these superiority dice. So they normally let you spend a die and then roll a die to do more damage or, or do other things yeah. uh, as the fighter. So one of them that we have new is called Ambush. When you make a dexterity stealth check or an initiative roll, you can expend it one superiority die and add that die to the roll, provided you're not incapacitated. I like it. Yep. Yep. Both of those things can be very important depending on the situation, and it's a good good use for a die. It is interesting that it's when you make, not someone else in your party. Mm -hmm. um, but when you've got to you know do that thing in the encounter, then I want to go earlier let me roll that die yep for sure. sure uh bait and switch is the next maneuver when you're within five feet of a creature on your turn you can expend one superiority die and switch places with that creature provided you spend at least five feet of movement and the creature is willing and isn't incapacitated okay that's important i didn't see that earlier uh, this movement doesn't provoke opportunity attacks Roll the superiority die until the start of your next turn. You or the other creature gain a bonus to AC equal to the number rolled. It's the old switcheroo. Yeah, the old <laughs> switcheroo. Now, when I originally read this, I didn't see it say the creature must be willing. Because I thought, wait a second. If you start doing that with unwilling creatures, you can wreak a lot of havoc. Oh, yeah. uh, but now I will remove my note because I have learned... Uh, next, <laughs> to read. yes, I've learned to read. <laughs> Reading comprehension is important. Uh, next, we have brace. When a creature you can see moves into the reach you have with the melee weapon you're wielding, you can use your reaction to expend one superiority die and make one attack against the creature using that weapon. If the attack hits, add the superiority die to the weapon's damage roll. So this is that old like AD and D would have like setting your spear, and I think third had yep. it too. Like where yep. you know something would charge at you and would take double damage. So this is sort of that concept, right? You're like, I'm gonna brace my weapon for them, and then when they move into me, mm -hmm. I'm ready for them, and I jab them with whatever I'm holding. It's kind of fun. Yeah. How does that work with things like Sentinel, the feet Sentinel? Do so it doesn't interact. And, and this is, again, another good example of Tasha's design being sound because Sentinel feet feeds off of opportunity attacks. Mm -hmm. And this is not an opportunity attack. It's a reaction that is not called an opportunity attack. It's not due to them leaving your space. They're coming into your reach. Gotcha. Um, so it is completely separate from it. So um, so this and, and because this is using your reaction, which is also what you need to take an opportunity attack, um, then you can't do both. Uh, which is great. In the past, editions would have that problem where you got more and more out of things like an opportunity attack or something like that. So I, I like that. All right. Is Does this interact anyway with Polearm Master? Let's see. While you are wielding a glaive, halberd, pike, quarterstaff, or spear, other creatures provoke an opportunity attack from you when they enter the reach with you have with that weapon. So it's essentially is... It doesn't use opportunity attack, um, but it lets you make an attack, but it doesn't give you any bonus to the damage. Huh. Interesting. I just thought of Polearm Master, so I just brought it up real yeah, quick. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I have yeah. no problem. One thing that's nice about this is that you can it is uh, usable off turn and mm -hmm. you are making an attack. So if you have things like sneak attack, right, I can see a rogue that wants to take this mm -hmm. um, because you get that extra ability to do off turn attacks and get sneak attack to it since sneak attack is per turn, not per round. So there's some possibilities there. Um, yeah, looks cool. Okay, sweet. Uh, and next is commanding presence. When you make a Charisma Intimidation, Charisma Performance, or Charisma Persuasion check, you can expend one superiority die and add the superiority die to the ability check. I, I'm happy. 
give yeah. me give me some of those sort of skill based options. Uh, yay! Yeah, uh, cool. grappling strike. Immediately after you hit a creature with a melee attack on your turn, you can expend one superiority die, and then try to grapple the target as a bonus action. You can add the superiority die roll to your strength athletics check. Thoughts? Yeah. So this is interesting because you can now get that grapple without having to take the grapple action. Mm -hmm. uh, you can get it as part of an attack, you know, with this. And you can't do it all the time because you got to spend your superiority die. But, but you know, you mm -hmm. can sometimes do this. And so then now they're grappled and then you'll get the extra D4 next time if you've got the unarmed fighting style. So, so there's some neat combinations here that makes it a little stronger. Yeah, it's fine. Uh, next is Quick Toss. As a bonus action, you can expend one superiority die and make a ranged attack with a weapon that has the thrown property. Uh, you can draw the weapon as part of the making this attack. If you hit, add the superiority die to the weapon's damage roll. Mm -hmm. So yep. here we get your synergy with thrown weapon style. Now you can spend a bonus action, spend a die, and do a especially damaging uh, weapon attacks you'll get plus two from throwing weapon style damage and you're getting to add your superiority die to the damage so it's kind of nice strong mm -hmm. throw cool yep tactical assessment when you make an intelligence investigation an intelligence history or a wisdom insight check you can expend one superiority die and add that die to the ability check so again uh, if if you run a campaign where those checks are very useful and important to the story or the game uh it is a great option yep and i almost think they oh. could have been not just you but another character but oh it's to to sort of assist someone yeah yeah their... just because sometimes uh, in both these cases you are not necessarily going to have the best you probably will not have the best check mm-hmm um, so I don't know that it would have been bad if you could have helped someone else by sort of making an argument, right? It's like a different, instead of doing the help action, you would do this. I don't know. All right. Interesting. And I think next time we will start digging into the subclasses. First one being the Psy Warrior. Mm -hmm. But now... For those of you who do not want to be spoiled on Icewind Dale, Rhyme of the Frost Maiden, thank you for listening. But you better uh, go out into the wild, breezy Arctic while we talk about Chapter 6, Caves of Hunger. Uh, Teos, you want to run us through the quick review of the first five chapters? Yeah, Chapter 1 and 2, we started in the Ten Towns, then we explored the surrounding areas. In chapters three to four, our heroes went to the Dwergar Fortress, or maybe straight to stop a dragon that was attacking the Ten Towns. Either way, they did both things eventually, and some <laughs> of the town was burned. In chapter five, we go to Oral's Island to steal the Codicil of White, because it is tied to opening a passage to another East Flying City, which crashed in the Ragged Glacier. And maybe we ended the rhyme, but we're not sure. If so, Oral's defeated for a year, but maybe she's coming to get us. That's probably what's happening. You're going to have to figure that one out. You might at this point be accompanied by Veline Harpel, an arcane brotherhood necromancer, if you're into that kind of friend, or a sentient magic item, Professor Orb, who can tell us about the Netherese elements. And it's time to try to reach the city in Chapter 6. And so Chapter 6, Caves of Hunger, is a big, big dungeon between the surface and the lost city and so we are going to cover it probably taking two weeks to do so we'll see how far we can get today yeah. uh, because as we said it is a big dungeon with lots of rooms uh, so the premise of this chapter is when the city crashed into the glacier oral sealed off it's essentially like a, a a mosquito in amber, right? She sealed yeah. it over so no one else could get to it. it. It became all hers. And so the city has been sitting there in this ice for a long time. What the characters need to do is use the rhyme of the Frost Maiden poem, which will open a hole in the glacier, allowing them access to the city. But before they get to the city, 
they have to go through the dungeon that sort of sprang up uh, over the years between the city and and the surface. You need to know before you run the chapter whether uh, Velen Harpel is with the characters, if the Professor Orb is with the characters, with Professor Scant inside. Um, otherwise, you might have to bring some other NPCs into the caves to help the story along. Uh, yeah, because there are a couple of uh, options inside of these caves that can sort of replace them if you need to. True. True. But if you when you read uh, the the dungeon, a lot of it is. And if Professor Scant is there, he tells the characters this and that. And that information is even if it's not important, which sometimes it is, it's often interesting. It often adds to the 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 background to the lore of the setting. So you sort of want something there that can do that rather than roll a history check. Oh, you got a 13. Is that good enough or not? I'd, you know, it's, it's better to, to be able to give that information without having to veil it or, or find an excuse to give it. Having that Sean. professor orb there is just great. And maybe Sean feeding off of what you're saying, maybe the thing that you want to do is just pick one or two characters that you think are the best position to know this sort of stuff and just highlight them. If, if they don't have the professor or right and they don't have right. Valine with them, then just pick the one or two PCs and periodically say, Hey, you know what, you know, because of your background, you know, this. Yeah. Oh, you're, you're, you're winter touched. You're touched by oral. This right. is going on in your head or you're an archeologist. Well, you studied this and yeah, exactly. Right. That's the best way to do it. Yeah. Because absolutely. You, you should not keep these things quiet because they, they are a big part of the color of this place. Mm -hmm. What about the levels? Well, the, <laughs> the levels are what level you should be when you're entering. Uh, so if your characters are not level eight by the time they are heading this way, the adventure suggests to run some random encounters to get them up to level eight. Or, you know, just say, hey, you're level eight because, you know, you're a DM and you can do what you want. Uh, halfway through the level, it is suggested that you go to ninth, I believe. Uh, when you reach area H39, which is your exit, actually. Okay. So when you finish this, you should be ninth at gotcha. the end of chapter six. Yep. So so he did say H39, which should give you the clue that there are at least <laughs> 39 rooms in this dungeon. Uh, Just but, maybe. But before we get there, a little bit happens on your trek. Uh, you are met by a shaman from the Regged Elk tribe who has received a vision that the characters are essentially the chosen ones who are going to save <laughs> Icewind Dale. Um, so he comes up to you with 10, 10 warriors and he asks, do you want some help getting to this place? Because he had a vision that the tiger tribe is going to intercept them. So yeah, <laughs> it, it, it is not false. So the characters can either say, no, we got this and send them away, which I don't see many uh, players doing but maybe they will or they can say sure come on with us and as prophesied the tiger tribe uh, queen Bjornhild I can't even try to pronounce that uh, Solving's daughter there you go uh, comes and attacks with her pet saber tooth tiger and 20 tribal warriors uh, if the characters have accepted the help of the elk tribe uh, they sort of hold off the 20 tribal warriors to let the characters fight uh, the leader. Or if the characters have killed the queen or dealt with the queen earlier in the adventure, um, there is a frost druid who attacks with, I believe, a rhino or a it's mammoth. Really, sorry, a mammoth. It's interesting here that the the adventure really says, you know, like, well, if this if this leader of this tribe died, then here's who he is. So like if, if the good guys, if somehow you killed off their leader, then you get a weaker person helping you. And likewise, mm -hmm. if you killed off the elk tribe queen, then you have a weaker opponent there. And what it impacts is so that it sort of suggests that you hand wave this combat as long as you have accepted the help of the elk. Right. So when you hand wave it, it has results. Sort of you run off into the into the uh, caves 
and then the a certain number of people will survive based mm -hmm. on what scenario took place and whether you had killed anybody before. Right. I don't. I'm curious how it plays in actuality at most tables. Like if you were to look at 30 tables that run this scene, mm -hmm. um, I'm curious what DMs choose to do. Will they just always hand wave it? Will they bother playing this out? And if they play it out, why wouldn't they just do the whole fight rather right. than run off? I don't. You know, yeah. it's just, it's 20 tribal warriors. The hardest part is that you have this shaman and a gladiator and the 10 warriors versus saber-toothed tiger, druid, uh, I think also a gladiator maybe, I don't know. But you, you've got a couple of beefy things in the mix and that will right. make the thing go longer. Yeah. But I, yeah, I'm really curious how it would play off. And for all of this effort, at the very end of this chapter, it's going to tell you something very interesting, which is, if you remember, and I've got, I don't remember her name. I got to look it up. Uh, Avarice. Yes. From the 10 Towns chapter one, I think, <laughs> right. where um, she's at the bottom of a dungeon in Carconag or Denival. I can't remember which one. Uh, she finally, we get a note saying she's going to show up. Yeah. So at the time that you're leaving the caverns, she shows up here and kills whoever's here anyway. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, so don't so all overthink those... this. If yeah. if Avarice is alive, don't overthink the. If you're hand waving it, don't yeah. overthink who and, and who's left because they're not going to be left. Yeah. When Avarice shows up, so it's, right. it's much to do about nothing a bit, kind of. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's the old trope of you, your friends say, "Well, we're going to wait and guard the entrance for you to come out, and we'll make sure nothing comes in after you." But then when you do come out, the bad guy is there, uh, having killed your friends and waiting for you. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. Very yeah. interesting. So once you get to the uh, waterfall, uh, the edge of the glacier that is a waterfall, you can read the poem, and sure enough, a passageway opens, revealing a tunnel that takes you to the caves of hunger. Uh, the general features are, as you might expect, lots of echoing and darkness. There are some ice slides that are very very easy to go down and very, very difficult to come up. Uh, the tunnels are 10 feet tall. The caverns are 30 feet tall. They're windy. Uh, some of them have been carved out by Remoraz. So, uh, you know, it's, it's cool to describe this cave as being formed by different things. So some of it is the wreck or wreckage from the city. You know, some of it's Remoraz caves. And, and uh, so just, you know, if your characters, if your players are into that, make sure you play up those descriptions. Did you want to talk about the psychic hauntings? Sure. So uh, in addition to the neat flavor that you just described, which is actually very cool and, and sort of like one of the, you know, I feel like we're actually getting to the horror <laughs> right. uh, of, of this adventure. Like it is kind of, it's very evocative, these, these winding, strange, echoing, icy tunnels. And then on top of it, because of the death of all those Netheries wizards and priests and, and, and other inhabitants that were sealed in this place, um, there the idea is that this place has locked in sort of their trauma. Um, so at various points, the text instructs you to roll a d20 <laughs> and uh, <laughs> consult this table. The table has results 1 through 12. Right. It says d12. So don't roll a d20, roll a d12. Right. Otherwise, you have an 8 in 20 <laughs> chance of, of being very confused. Yeah. Uh, on a 7 to 12, nothing happens. So there really are only six results, which I kind of actually would have liked this to be. I wonder if this was like a space thing or something. And it was at one point a table yeah. with many more things. I'm sure. Um, this, this is what it feels like having been through projects. Um, because six different hauntings, I actually would like more of them and more to use. Um, and they're, they're little things that are, you know, full of horror things. Like each party member sees their companion's flesh wither as black worms crawl out of their ears, noses, and mouths. This effect is illusory, harmless, and fleeting. Um, you hear heavy footsteps behind you, you know, and you feel hot breath on the back of your neck. And these are just great ways to get under the skin of the players. And, and specific rooms, again, will say that there can be a psychic haunting here. So you roll to see if it happens. Mm -hmm. I would just use these when you want. Yeah. and add them to build the suspense the game needs to give mm -hmm. this place a really haunting feel, which is, the I think, the overall strength of this chapter. Yep, 
Oh, f- totally. I mean, this the the horror elements here are um, great to play up. And as you say uh, in your notes, this would have been great to to have done in earlier chapters. And I want to take that. I want to take this a step further. One of the powerful elements of narrative of storytelling is repetition and slight changes in repetition. So think of the story of the three little pigs, right? One of the first stories we learn, what, what's that story? It's the same thing happening three times, but the third time there's a different outcome. Yeah. So, so, you know, that's, that's the power of that story. You know, the theme, obviously uh, build your house of bricks, but (laughs) The method that whoa, you get whoa, to do. Spoiler, Sean. Yes, spoiler. I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> I just spoiled through the three little pigs. Okay. Uh, uh, we're going to have to post a warning. On yeah. The site. But, <laughs> warning, spoiler for three little pigs. Uh, but, you know, the point there is the repetition. So, so here's what I'm doing. I am doing these hauntings right from the start of this adventure. Mm-hmm. Oh, you're seeing your friends with worms crawling out of their mouths. Oh, it happens again here. Oh, it happens again here. Here it really happens. Oh, and they take 2D10 damage <laughs> as these worms crawl out of their mouths. Right? So the repetition, is, it's, it's spooky. Yeah. It's scary. Oh, my gosh, it's happening. It has teeth. Yeah. yeah. Right. And, and so that's building up from something that is is spectral to something that is real. Um, yeah. That gets the point across that, yeah, we were on the fringes of something strange. Now we're in the middle of something strange. Uh, and, you know, and that makes me think of the fact that in this chapter, while it, it, we are told that Oral sealed this place off, sometimes it's easy to forget that, right? That this is Oral's hand throughout, right? She created this psychic trauma because she actually feeds off of at a divine level these sort of feelings Mm -hmm. right this loneliness this hopelessness this you know dying to the cold like this is her meat and drink this is this is the bedrock of her church Mm -hmm. and so it makes sense for it to have teeth here and to have a stronger presence And, and you shouldn't let the characters forget that this is oral's hand at work it's not just haunted caves right she made them haunted it's her power right and the power that you see her have in real time is much less than the power she must have had when she did this. Uh, yeah, because later it talks about her creating undead from, from dead bodies, right? She's creating flame skulls later. Uh, that's not something that she was doing when you fought her you know, <laughs> two sessions ago. Uh, so keep that in mind and you know play up that Things are going to get worse from here, not better. Yeah. Then this adventure in this chapter adds an interesting uh, monster mm-hmm. that can appear throughout the caves. So this is Tekeli. You want to talk about this? Uh... Yeah. It. This is well. How far? How much do you want to talk about this? So uh, <laughs> Tekeli Lee. It goes way back in literature. To Edgar Allan Poe, his novel, the only novel he wrote, was called The Narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym of Nantucket. And in that novel, uh, the protagonist, Arthur Gordon Pym, um, no no, uh, correlation to Edgar Allan Poe, of course, uh, Uh is on a ship heading toward the South Pole. And they go through this sort of veil of snow, and everything is white. And the birds that are flying overhead are screaming to Keeley Lee, to Keeley Lee. <laughs> so that's the first time it appears in, in literature. Later, a gentleman you may know by the name of Howard Philip Lovecraft uh, wrote At the Mountains of Madness, where the Shoggoth that the, the characters encounter um, say to Keeley Lee. <laughs> so it has this uh, horror basis in in you know literature in D&D now uh this is a knoll who has become a vampire mm-hmm. and do you want to talk about the uh the gray box timeline yeah so 
uh, what we're told here is that in 1333 DR, which means it's about 156 years ago from the likely time that this adventure is intended to be run, uh, which means that it's actually just before the timeline when the original AD&D gray box, the first Forgotten Realms box set came out. So that's mm -hmm. how old this knoll is. Right. Back then, right, gray box, just before the gray box, this knoll was hunting reindeer, uh, or a bunch of knolls were, and the ragged tribes in Dale banded together, and the knolls retreated into an icy cleft, which is this place. And the gnolls allowed their leader, who was a fan of Yunogu, to eat them one by one. And at the end, you end up with just this one fang of Yunogu gnoll. Uh, and Oral apparently enjoyed this and decided to imprison the gnoll in an icy tomb as an embodiment of winter's remorseless consumption. Mm -hmm. And so now you have this one gnoll vampire that remains locked away from the world until you go and open the waterfall with the poem. There you go, opening the waterfall letting letting the knoll vampire out and i like this strategy i'm curious what you think that they tell us that um professor scant the orb will will is an expert on vampires and will actually tell you all about vampire weaknesses that's mm -hmm. a very interesting twist right you like right. I'm, first time you see one of these because there are lesser versions uh you know professor scant will give you the the chapter on what what vampires are right. how you fight a vampire and and what I'm doing with this is I am combining the horror with comedy. So as they're fighting this thing, you know, as it's doing whatever it's going to do to the characters, Professor Scant is yelling, how did that feel? What did that feel like? <laughs> yeah, because, you know, it's I, I see it as this sort of obviously it's it's not, you know, it's not a human. But it's right. got this human's intellect and human curiosity taken to the extreme of, you know, yeah. describe to me what this feels like as this creature is, is devouring your soul. I like uh, it. I yeah. like it. Yeah. The, yeah, uh, and uh, yeah, go ahead. Just that the, the, the mechanic here is that what the vampire will do is you have a table with D, a D6 table with six locations. Um, where Tekeli can be encountered. And uh, whenever you meet Tekeli there, they will attack you, try to drain your resources, and whenever they take 20 damage, they'll turn into mist and vanish to appear again. Yeah. Um, the table is interesting. What I would simply do is I would just... I would probably have it show up at all these locations. I mean, I, I don't... Because what I don't know that I want to do is roll randomly and, oh, it's at age 36, so you only meet it at age 36. Mm -hmm. like, yeah. That takes away from it. I would, I would just say that each of those locations, unless the party is too beat up, have it show up and retreat. That's the whole point of this attack and run. Mm -hmm. And, and the, the places where it can show, uh, show up are, are, tend to be neat places for it to show up that are interesting sort of battles and scenes. Yeah. So I'm, I would make the most of it. I don't know how you feel about it. I feel the exact same way. If you're going to make the horror of this stand out, um, I, I, I love the concept. Um, I think you as the DM are going to need to take more of a heavy hand in where he, where it appears and how it reacts and even how strong it is. Because what the text says is when it takes 20 points of damage, it you know goes into mist and disappears. Well, I think it starts with 90 hit points maybe uh, against a level 8 party unless there's so much going on around it that the players are distracted. The first character might do 20 points of damage. Uh, that doesn't um, really terrify a, a group of players when this big bad monster the you know whatever the warlock steps up and casts a spell oh did i do 20 points of damage oh it turns to gas and goes away you didn't even get a chance to see it so yeah you might have to massage this a bit to bring this feeling of not it doesn't have to be indestructible but it can't be such a pushover that it appears they do 20 damage. It goes away before it can even attack. It appears again, you do 20 points of damage. It goes away and comes back. That's just, that's like having a little brother or sister. That's just constantly begging you for attention. That's not 
anything that's dangerous, <laughs> right? So right, right. That's, that's not the feeling that you want to get across with this. It, it also doesn't do you know, unbelievable amounts of damage. Right. So it, 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 I, I'm with you in that you don't want to show up and do very little damage and they immediately have to retreat. So yeah, beef this thing up. Um, don't let it just be killed and knocked into mist. It, it, it can leave and retreat when it has done what you need it to do narratively, right? The other thing here is that I'm, I'm and maybe I don't know this well enough, but sh the shape changer feet um, uses its action to polymorph into a form, including cloud of mist. Polymorph requires concentration, right? So if it takes magical damage, it would revert. And I, I think if I'm if I'm understanding this correctly, and I would not allow this to be knocked out of right. mist form. Yeah, I had oh, a game I played yeah. once that where I turned into cloud of mist, thinking I was going to get away, and someone hit me with magical damage, and was like, "Well, isn't that concentration?" And don't you? And I was like, and we all looked it up and concluded, "Oh yeah, I guess I just am back to me." And it was so anticlimactic for what I thought I had very carefully planned. Um, so. I would not allow that, right? Like, you know, whatever the actual rules are of this thing, when it turns into mist form, it should just be unstoppable. This thing is 156 yours. It's older than the gray box. Don't let it just be killed in a round, you know? <laughs> right. And, you know, one of the other things of horror narratives is the sense of impending doom, but this, this, because something happened, right? In, in the thing or in other sorts of, of, movies or media like that the creature comes out it stings you and then it disappears and because you're stung you are slowly dying you're slowly turning into something else if you can make tequila lee have something like that not not horribly overpowering right but this sort of like the mummy rot sort of thing where it's like yeah. oh my gosh i need to get healed uh we don't have the healing we need and i need to get healed within you know a week or something horrible is going to happen you know you having could, yeah you could do that with the sickening gaze so it yeah. has this uh hyena or vampire form target a humanoid you can see within 30 feet con save or you're poisoned for 24 hours that it could be more than poisoned right it could be a sort of draining right um yeah you know and you could also do something like like maybe if you short rest you actually take damage instead of heal Right. So you don't want to short rest. And even if you don't short rest, if your friends do, right, like that would happen or just something like that. I agree with you. Like that would be a yeah. great evocative feel for right. this thing that would really so, up your game. Yep. So that way it comes in, it does its thing, whether, yeah, bite or sickening gaze or whatever. And then it goes away right away. And just that one round it was there and did that thing, did this horrible thing to one of them. Yeah. Then it comes back three rooms later, does the same thing, and then leaves to someone else. Oh, now they're in this situation. Uh, you know that is yeah. that's horror. That that, yeah, is, that is what horror. the that's what brings an element of horror to this narrative that may otherwise be lacking. Yeah, and and absolutely. So I would I would pump this up heavily and I've had a lot of fun when I designed custom creatures that could easily get away from characters and and attack them again and sort of mimicked things like the movie Alien mm -hmm. those were really really memorable games but yep. they must be able to 100% get away from the party mm -hmm. and you can come up with whatever, whatever rules fake it till you make it yep. allow that because that's the crux of how you deliver on that experience and this is an important reminder that these adventures are yours you don't have to follow the text Mm -hmm. um, and this is a great example where don't just follow that text and be really right. disappointed with this vampire that's supposed to deliver a cool thing. Deliver yeah. the cool thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It it can turn into a, a mist cloud anytime it takes damage. Yeah, it can uh, as a reaction do it. Boom. Yeah, perfect. Right. And and yep. then and then you and move are at speed. Yep. <laughs> Whatever. And it yeah. can go through cracks, right? So and everything is cracked ice around here. Yeah. Uh, including yeah. the floor. So boom, there you go. Uh, so, you know, but again, don't, don't, it shouldn't be rocks fall. Everybody dies. Yeah. It just should deliver that sort of horror feel that, that yeah. you were might be going for. And then you can do things like just have a mist kind of go through a room mm -hmm. and everybody freaks out, but it's not the, the vampire. Yeah. <laughs> it's not to kill the exactly. Exactly. I mean, you want to, uh, a, a mist flows into the room, roll initiative. 
what do you do? Everyone starts throwing magic at this, you know, and that too gets across the point of, of, you know, there, not only are the characters paranoid, the players are paranoid. Yeah. Uh, yeah you know, that yeah. gets across that feeling of paranoia pretty quickly. Yeah. And then you have things like the, there are those Reamer has pools that have uh, heat to them. So there can be mist all around there. So they're just yeah. waiting for the vampire to also show up, but doesn't. Yeah. Or it does either way. Right. Right. When they think it's not showing up, that's when you hit them with it too. Right? Yep. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Uh, well, we, we're at the hour mark. Uh, so I think next time we will hit the highlights of the caves of hunger, all 39 rooms of them. Yeah. Sweet. Well, thank you all for listening. Uh, thank you for, to our patrons for supporting us monetarily. If you would like to become a patron for the show, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash MMP. Teos, where can people find you on the interwebs? Uh, I'm at NewBDM. No, wait, wait. Uh, <laughs> at AlphaStream. Uh, and you can find me on the Misdirected Mark forums, my blog at alphastream.org. And I am at Sly Flourish. I, I mean, at Sean Merwin. <laughs> or you can go to those forums at forums.misdirectedmark.com. Or you can follow the podcast Twitter at MasteringDND. Mastering Dungeons is a misdirected Mark production, the media arm of Encoded Designs. So, Mr. Abadia, what should we do now? Let's go stab at some monsters that just turn into mist and fade away. I'm scared. <laughs> <laughs>